Hey guys, welcome to the Revised Stronger Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today we have another great guest on the podcast, and it's Greg Potter. We are, of course, on for another sleep clinic, and in this episode, we talk about what can you do in the evening to improve your sleep in terms of what you eat, and also some supplementation that you might want to use. Greg deep dives into these and also gives you the practical application that you need. So without further ado, let's get straight into the episode. Enjoy, guys. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Greg Potter back on the show for another sleep clinic. I was looking back, he was on episode 267, and we were talking about stages of sleep and fitness trackers. And what I'm loving about these episodes, and hopefully you guys are as well, is we're really kind of, we're building like a, I don't know, like a dictionary on sleep almost, like a really in-depth kind of conversation every time. So it's not just kind of covering the absolute basics. It's going deep dives, which I think is going to be really valuable to people and super comprehensive. Uh, I was just joking off air. I've just come off the bodybuilding stage and Greg's over there looking uh, more tanned than me. So you're, you're not working, Greg. You're just like out sunbathing all the time. <laughs> this is actually fake tan. <laughs> is it actually? No. No, I was going to say. You, you're the type of guy that tans really easily, aren't you? Yeah, I keep some color year round, fortunately. Yeah. Whereas I'm pale as anything. <laughs> I'm like a vampire. <laughs> uh, so today we're going to be talking about uh, end of the day nutrition and supplementation. So obviously that's when we're about to go to sleep and our food and nutrition, chrononutrition, as we've talked about, can impact the quality of our sleep. Uh, and as bodybuilders, a lot of people listening, people after muscle growth, we consider nutri nutritional timing and pre-bed kind of supplementation. And so I think this is a great place to start because I mean, especially supplementation is such a unregulated and people kind of oversell you on certain things. And I know the place we're going to start, Greg, was kind of what should I eat at my final meal to support sleep was kind of the, the question that was asked. So if we start there and you can kind of dig into it. Sounds good. And um, what I'll do this time, just because I saw a comment on one of the previous episodes saying <laughs> I took 20 minutes to get to the answer is I'm actually going to start with a very short answer to each of the questions and then elaborate on my response. So the short answer to what you should be eating at this time is if you've trained late, then you probably want some protein, a dose of carbohydrate, quite possibly high glycemic index carbohydrate, and potentially some fruit too. As an example of this, you might have some oily fish, some jasmine rice, and some kiwi fruits. Or if you don't have time to prepare your food, then you could have something like a pot of natural yogurt with some kiwis and some cherries. And there are reasons that I pick those specific items and I'll, I'll now expand on why. But I preface my answer as usual by saying that it depends on lots of factors. One of those is your genetics. One is your phenotype. So how heavy you are, for example, how much fat-free mass you have. One is your goals, and I know that we've discussed the importance of meal timing previously, in particular in the episode on chrononutrition, but just briefly, obviously meal timing is important. I won't go into all the details, but I think most people should typically finish their final meal 
and stop consuming anything containing calories by about two hours before their planned bedtime. And if you're trying to optimize your sleep, then it's best to go to bed neither hungry nor full. All very obvious stuff, but there was a nice study published quite recently looking at the effects of the timing of the final meal. And what the scientists did was they just compared having dinner one hour before bed to having the same meal five hours before bed. So there was a four hour difference in the two meal patterns. And what they found was that blood sugar regulation in response to the later dinner was worse. Overnight fat oxidation was lower. And while the later meal didn't affect sleep architecture, so the sleep stages that I discussed last time, it did lead to higher overnight blood cortisol levels. And that isn't necessarily a good thing. So with that said, let's go into the actual items that you might consider consuming at the final meal. I mentioned protein. Obviously, that's important for lots of different things. One is maximizing skeletal muscle protein balance. One is supporting your bone health. One is supporting your immune function. I think that's often underappreciated. And one is helping with appetite regulation too. And much of the research on this particular subject has been done by Luke Van Loon's group in the last few years. And they've studied both healthy young adults and elderly adults too, and basically found that pre-sleep protein ingestion is well digested, well absorbed. It does stimulate myofibrillar muscle protein synthesis, which is great. And it doesn't seem to meaningfully affect things like next day resting energy expenditure or substrate use. But all of those things I just described are good things. And probably the most relevant study to the listeners was done by Tim Snyders in 2015. And what they did in that particular study was they took young men through a 12-week-long strength training program, and they gave one group a protein supplement immediately before bed that also contained a small amount of carbohydrate. And the other group just had a a non-energetic placebo. And what they found was that at the end of the 12 weeks, when they looked at people's one rep max strength, it increased quite a lot more in the high-protein group. 26% more. They also gained more fat-free mass. And that's all great, but what I think needs to be added is that the high-protein group did consume more total protein. So their protein intake was about 1.9 grams per kilo, whereas the controls was about 1.3 grams per kilo. And I think most people recognize that if you're competing in a physique sport, say 1.3 grams per kilo is probably going to be suboptimal. So I think as a rule of thumb, consuming at least 0.4 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight at that final meal is a good place to start. And a lot of the researchers look specifically at casein protein, which is a good choice. It's relatively slowly digested. Truth be told, I don't think that we know which type of protein is best at this particular time because there hasn't been much work looking at head-to-head comparisons between, say, whey and casein or whey, soy and casein or some meat-based protein and dairy-based proteins. And interestingly, not all casein is created equal. There was some work published recently looking at different types of casein, showing that 
some are digested faster than others. And I think specifically they found that cross-linked casein is digested faster than micellar, which is faster than calcium caseinate. But again, we don't really know much about the importance of that. I think the point is just that milk protein is a perfectly good choice at this time. And I think meat would also be a perfectly good choice. Whole eggs would be too. And I say whole eggs, and I think going for whole food options is probably a good idea. There's been work, for example, comparing whole eggs to egg whites and the addition of fat and that whole food matrix is, is probably a good thing for muscle protein balance in many contexts. And the final thing that I'll add with respect to milk is that you can collect it at different times of day. And if you collect milk from animals during the night, then there's melatonin in it. And it's possible that nighttime milk might be better for sleep health than milk collected during the daytime. There have been a few studies looking at that somewhat esoteric subject. Okay, so the next thing to consider is fiber intake at this time. And fiber is, of course, generally a good thing for health, not always, but generally. And that relates to effects on things like how full you feel and how well you control your blood sugar following meals. And while there hasn't been much research on this specifically, there's a little bit of work looking at what happens when you bring people into the lab and you give them a standardized diet for several days and you then let them choose what they want to eat on the fifth day in this example. And you use polysomnography, the gold standard method of assessing sleep to look at their sleep. And when that was done by a lady named Marie Pierre Saint-Ange a few years ago, she found that people who consumed more fiber spent less time in stage one sleep, which is the lighter stage of sleep, and more time in slow wave sleep or deep sleep. And that change in sleep architecture is probably good because you would assume that it produces slightly more restorative sleep than the converse. So I think fiber might be a good thing. We don't really know what fiber is doing. It could be affecting sleep through certain appetite-related hormones like CCK, which is an intestinal hormone that seems to be weakly somnogenic or sleep promoting might also influence things like the production of certain inflammatory factors that can influence sleep homeostasis. And there's some interesting work looking at certain prebiotics. So people might've heard of galacto oligosaccharides or fructo oligosaccharides. And in some contexts, they might help people better cope with stress, reducing responses to stresses which plausibly might be a positive thing for sleep if somebody's having a hard time at work, say, or stressed out because of exams or in the latter stages of contest prep. And then with respect to digestible carbohydrate, I mentioned glycemic index earlier, and there's been work looking at this for, for quite a long time now. And recently, people have started to look at it in the context of sports performance too. The idea here is that if you consume a high glycemic index or high glycemic load meal, then in response to that, your pancreas is going to produce a substantial amount of insulin. That insulin is going to drive certain amino acids, in particular branch chain amino acids, into skeletal muscle. And that means that there are going to be fewer of those amino acids left to compete with tryptophan, 
for entry into the brain via the large neutral amino acid transporter. More tryptophan goes into the brain, tryptophan gets converted to serotonin and then ultimately melatonin. So by increasing melatonin, you might sleep better. That's the supposed rationale. I think there's probably more at play. Glucose, for example, inhibits erexinergic neurons and erexin has quite strong wake promoting effects, but maybe there's an effect on melatonin. Now, with that said, I think the most relevant study in this context is probably one that was done by some Cypriot researchers a few years ago. And it wasn't looking at strength training, but they had people come into the lab, do a bout of intermittent cycling in the evening. And then straight after they had about two grams of carbs per kilo from either high GI rice, which was jasmine rice, or low GI rice. And they found that after high GI rice intake, they fell asleep much faster, four times faster. They slept slightly longer, their sleep quality was a bit better. And interestingly, they also took some measures the next day of both mental function and physical performance too. And they found that reaction time in a cognitive test was a bit better. And they didn't find any effects on physical performance, I don't think. But over time, it's plausible that that improved sleep could meaningfully affect physical performance. So that's intriguing. And I think if you train in the evening, going for a high glycemic index carbohydrate source is quite possibly a good idea. Or if you just have very good glucose tolerance anyway. So you're not concerned about your average blood sugar level because it's generally pretty good and you're just trying to optimize your sleep. I think, again, having that high glycemic index carbohydrate source at final meal might well be a good idea. And then there's fat. And I won't touch on alcohol because I'll assume that people aren't heavy drinkers if they're listening to this, but there hasn't been that much good research on fat. And that's true of a lot of studies on the subject of nutrition and sleep but it seems that certain fats might have some weak sleep enhancing effects and of the different fats that have been studied i think epa and dha rich food sources which includes oily fish you could take them as supplements might have some small effects on sleep in some people probably mostly in people who don't get enough of those fats from their regular diets. So if you take a group of people who don't consume much fish, you give them oily fish three times a week, their sleep tends to be slightly better. And so I think at this meal, given what I said earlier about protein and the protein source probably not mattering too much, provided that it's complete, I think having oily fish is a good option at this time too. And otherwise just making sure that that you get plenty of those long chain unsaturated fatty acids. And then finally, we have the specific food items that have been studied. I mentioned cherries and kiwis earlier. And when people think about melatonin, they typically think about melatonin that's produced in the brain in animals. And melatonin is actually more or less ubiquitous. It's found in plants too. And some plants have lots of melatonin in them. Going by one analysis, one gram of pistachios contains over 200 micrograms of melatonin, which is 
roughly the amount that a lot of people would want to supplement if they were trying to improve their sleep. One gram of pistachios. <laughs> do, we, do we know if that affects sleep? No, it hasn't been studied to my knowledge. It's plausible that it does, but I think a lot of people think that some of the effects of plants on sleep that have been identified so far are mediated by the melatonin in the plants. And this has probably been best demonstrated for tart cherries. Specifically, people tend to use Montmorency tart cherries. And there have been quite a few studies looking at the effects of consuming cherries on sleep. Not in physique athletes, but in various groups of people. And they tend to have people consume 30 milliliters of tart cherry concentrate a couple of times a day, often in the form of a product named Cherry Active, which you can buy. And they tend to show that people sleep slightly longer, their sleep efficiency is slightly better too. And the cool thing about cherries is that they seem to quite clearly help with recovery from exercise too. And there was a meta-analysis published on this subject this year by Glenn Howitson, who's up in Northumbria. He's done a lot of the research on tart cherries in recent times. And he found that when people consume tart cherries, they have less muscle soreness after damaging exercise. Their muscle strength recovers faster, as does their muscle power, in particular in the lower body. And unsurprisingly, you might also see lower levels of certain inflammatory substances in the blood to IL-6, CRP, that type of thing. So I think if you're going to give it a go, then you might want to take the first dose pre-exercise, often taking something like 90 minutes before exercise, and then another, either with the final meal, you could have it later than that if you wanted to. I don't think that that's necessary, but it's often done that way in the literature. And then... The others are kiwi fruit. <laughs> and there was a study that had people consume two kiwis each evening, one hour before bed for a few weeks. And they found that people fell asleep faster. They woke up less during the night and their subjective sleep quality improved too. As you can imagine, it's really hard to control these studies. So they're fraught with difficulties. But I think if there's something to that, and there is some preclinical research showing that there might be certain plant chemicals in kiwis that could have some sleep-promoting effects, then maybe there is something to it. And then finally, the other food is a particular type of tomatoes. It's probably triple tomatoes, but they studied beef steak tomatoes. I didn't know those were a thing, but they are. And having 250 grams of beef steak tomatoes per day improve sleep quality. And interestingly, they looked at the levels of 6-sulfatoxy melatonin, which is the primary metabolite of melatonin. And they found that 6-sulfatoxy melatonin levels were 10 times higher when people were consuming the tomatoes. So again, it's plausible that that effect is mediated by the tomatoes. So just going back to the start, I think protein, high GI carbs, maybe throw in some tomatoes, some cherries, some kiwis, see how you get on. That was, uh, as I start, stated at the beginning, we we're going to be comprehensive. That was super comprehensive and, and very interesting along many lines. And actually, the, the overwhelming message I was almost getting there was like having a micronutrient-dense diet generally 
you're probably, I mean, some of these fruits and veg haven't even been studied. I imagine there could be discoveries of other kind of fruit and veg that could potentially uh, influence and help sleep. So yeah, that that's really cool to to know. I imagine a lot of people are eating a lot of these already, or maybe they can like swap something else in. Something that did come to mind though, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this, Greg, is you talked about kind of having quite a bit of fiber in that final meal and maybe having the kind of fatty fish would that influence the kind of glycemic index? And would that kind of, I don't know, counteract that? Or what would you think to that? Yeah, it absolutely would. It, it would slow the entry of glucose into the blood, reducing the glycemic excursion. And as a result, you'd expect the pancreas to produce less insulin. And ultimately, there'd be less tryptophan in the brain for conversion to melatonin. So, yes hasn't been studied to my knowledge take the high glycemic index or high glycemic load carbohydrate take it with or without different sources of protein how does that affect sleep we don't know but i mentioned combining them just because i know how important muscle protein balance is to most people listening to this podcast yeah. it's probably the most important thing to them actually <laughs> that and their fat balance and so I would have it regardless, okay. but it's a really good point. And I guess the other thought was with the studies in at hand, I don't suppose they really are measuring this, but I'm assuming it's like maintenance calories. Most people are eating at maintenance, not like in a surplus. I, I guess it might influence if someone's at a surplus or deficit and what have you. At least, I mean, you talked about appetite control. So like someone in a surplus probably doesn't want to be stuffing them. I always find like people end up saving calories for the evening. I think we've discussed it before. And you kind of said, well, in a dieting phase, that might not be a, a bad thing, but in a mass or a, a surplus it probably is going to cause problems. Spot on. Yeah, that, that's what I'd say. If you're dieting, then you might want to play around with having a larger evening meal so that you don't wake up ravenous in the middle of the night recognizing that during that time your metabolic health is likely very good relative to most people whereas if you're trying to gain mass and you're eating around the clock distribution probably doesn't matter quite so much and if you go to bed feeling stuffed then you might not sleep so well if you don't sleep so well then more of the mass that you put on is going to be fat mass and less it's going to be fat free mass hey pascal here i just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. And then the only other question, I wondered if, because so, I guess some of these uh, foods, a lot of them are leading to melatonin, or there might be other influences from other nutrients you discussed there. If you're someone who's already supplementing with melatonin, does that kind of like circumvent worrying about the individual foods that you're eating and you just go with what you mentioned there in terms of just like have a protein high glycemic index kind of meal good question and this this is something that's probably worth talking about separately but melatonin is interesting because it tends to reduce glucose stimulated insulin secretion by the pancreas and it does so more in some people than others the reason for that is genetic variation in one of the genes that encodes one of the melatonin receptors. The gene name is MTNR1B. And a lot of people, particularly people of Northern European ancestry, have the risk allele, which as a result of that change in insulin and 
subsequently glucose metabolism predisposes them to diabetes. And if you take these people, and this isn't so relevant to the practical use of melatonin, but it is relevant to the question. If you take these people and you give them melatonin during the day, which is not when you would take melatonin, except in maybe rare circumstances like jet lag, and shortly after taking five milligrams of melatonin, you give them a bolus of carbohydrate, and you then measure their blood sugar responses, if they have the risk variant of the melatonin receptor gene, then their blood sugar responses are much, much worse than if they don't have the risk variant. So during the daytime, it seems that taking melatonin in close proximity to eating lots of carbohydrate would be a really bad idea. But that effect is largely washed out by taking it at night. And what I mean is that if you then take the group of people who have the risk variant or don't have the risk variant, you give them melatonin at night and you give them a meal at night and you look at their blood sugar response, the difference between groups is much smaller. So melatonin seems to have less of an acute effect on postprandial metabolism at night than it does during the day. So I think if you are taking melatonin, you, you probably want to take it a bit of time after your final meal of the day. And maybe the advice to have your final calories of the day, at least two hours before bed becomes slightly more important if you're supplementing with melatonin, which you typically do about one hour before bed. Very interesting. Yeah, I know we've, we've actually, I, I always end up jumping ahead talking about things that I know we've got questions on. I'm like, oh yeah, we're going to talk about that. So no, I mean, yeah, like I said, really, really interesting. And the, the short basic advice, I think like it, it'll probably cover a lot of people, but the little nuances and even the discussion into different types of casein, like I was aware that sometimes I buy different types and the powder actually is different when you get it and they thicken up slightly differently. So it's very interesting to even know that they're done digested at different speeds, but that's a kind of different discussion. Um, should we get to the next question? I know. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the next one uh, was asked, what should I consider when selecting supplements to help me sleep better? Quite a few things. <laughs> and I think this is actually a really important question because nobody ever really asks it. No. And discussions of supplements I've heard are usually pretty facile. Short answer is who you are what your sleep is like what goals you're trying to achieve all of the effects on the supplement including effects on non-sleep outcomes and getting the right version of the supplement and then also how to test the supplement properly too so it is possible to do somewhat rigorous n of one trials most people aren't inclined to do them but you can do them so just to break that down a bit first your sleep phenotype is important some people struggle to fall asleep at the start of the night some people struggle to fall to sleep through the night and some people might have pain that wakes them up and all those different things can influence what supplement is best and then the type of sleep that you have will also influence some related phenotypes too. So for example, if you look at people who have narcolepsy, they tend to have poor metabolic health. Then you think about the actual biology of the particular sleep phenotype that you have. And 
as an example of this, you might have pain, but not all pain is created equal. Sometimes it's musculoskeletal pain, which could be helped with one particular product. Other times it's neuropathic pain, which might be better targeted by something else. Then you've got your supplement mechanisms of action. And the way that sleep aids affect sleep is often by increasing signaling through sleep-related pathways, such as GABA in the brain, but you can also inhibit wake-promoting pathways. And you can use different supplements to enhance the function of your circadian system, clock-enhancing molecules. And there are some really underappreciated ways to target sleep too. So one would be building lots of pressure to sleep during the daytime. So you can use supplements during the daytime to create more sleep homeostasis, more sleep pressure. And I think one of the better ways to do that would be to specifically try and activate brown fat, which is, again, not something that's ever really discussed, but it seems that brown adipose tissue thermogenesis is important to things like sleep rebound after sleep deprivation and that might be one of the reasons why if you take people and you put them in a, a cool room you see an increase in their brown fat activation they also tend to sleep better you see that increase if they're in good metabolic health at least and then you should also consider that those different ways of targeting sleep will influence sleep architecture so I mentioned GABA there, which is the main inhibitory neuromodulator in the brain, which just means that it influences neurons in a way that makes them less likely to fire. And many GABAergic drugs and sleep aids tend to increase the proportion of time people spend in non-rapid eye movement sleep. And these different ways of targeting sleep will also influence things like the likelihood of you experiencing withdrawal effects and developing tolerance to different sleep aids over time and so on. And sometimes it takes some time for those to manifest. Some people will come off a particular sleep aid and straight away the following night they struggle to sleep. But there are rare instances in which it takes weeks for that type of thing to manifest. And then there are the fact that then there's the fact that while a lot of people think that things that are natural are benign, or at least they have that knee-jerk response, some things that you find in the natural world are extremely potent. And this isn't so relevant to sleep, although you could actually use it plausibly to help you dream lucidly. But there's a supplement you might have heard of named Hooperzine A, which is commonly taken as a nootropic. It's a very, very potent acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So it stops the breakdown of acetylcholine from proceedings quickly. You therefore have more acetylcholine in the synapse. Acetylcholine is important things like learning and attention. So potentially there's an effect on cognition. And those types of aids often used in diseases like Alzheimer's. So some of these natural substances are very potent. Then we can consider the fact that some supplements will indirectly improve sleep. And Steve, I don't know if when you get very heavy, you've ever noticed that your sleep quality deteriorates, but I was speaking a few days ago with John Jewett and Luke Miller on their podcast. And obviously they're both very, very large human beings. <laughs> Much bigger than me. <laughs> <laughs> and 
they they regularly get to the point where they have quite bad sleep apnea because they have so much body mass. If we take somebody who's obese, obviously they've got very different body composition from those two guys I just mentioned, but they're also predisposed to sleep apnea. So for them, something that helps them lose weight is likely to help their sleep, but it's not through targeting those neuromodulators in the brain. It's by reducing the mass of the neck. And similarly, you can use supplements to help offset the effects of certain sleep issues. And one example of this is that people can take nitrates if they have obstructive sleep apnea and the nitrates will increase nitric oxide signaling and thereby reduce their blood pressure, which is bound to be a good thing. Then I mentioned earlier that there's the whole spectrum of different effects that supplements have on us. And I think with respect to sleep athletes, sleep aids like sleep athletes, athletes, <laughs> sleep aids such as ashwagandha then become more interesting as we've discussed before, the cool thing about ashwagandha is that there's a bit of evidence showing that either KSM 66 ashwagandha, 300 milligrams twice a day, or sensorial ashwagandha, 500 milligrams once a day, taken regularly, both improve sleep, but also accelerate how quickly people gain fat-free mass and strength during resistance training. The study of KSM 66 also found that people lost a bit of fat mass and boosted their testosterone. All that's really attractive if you're getting ready for body bodybuilding competition. So if there's also a positive effect on sleep, then all of a sudden that might move to the top of the sleep supplement league table. And then there are things like interactions between different supplements. And one of the issues here is that most sleep aids that people try can contain multiple ingredients. But it's rarely the case that ingredients are studied in combination in any type of systematic way. That's started to change recently, but it is still really the case. And just as an example of this, lemon balm is a plant that you can take that basically ultimately reduces the degradation of GABA and valerian might help stimulate the synthesis of GABA. So there might be some sort of additive effect of the two on GABAergic signaling and thereby sleep. And then there are a few other interactions too. So one would be supplement times gene interaction. We, we spoke about melatonin there. That's a good example of that. Another key one would be how bioavailable supplements are. And we'll get to, to cannabis later, but this is true of, of some of the cannabinoids. And one of them, which is certainly among the more interesting, is called PEA, palmitoyl ethanolamide. One of the issues with it is just, it's just not that bioavailable, but there's a micronized form of it available now, which makes it much more bioavailable and thereby makes it more potent. And then a few other things would be how supplements interact with our behaviors each day. And what I mean by that is that it's possible that using supplements at a regular time each day could help consolidate other behaviors. So you take the supplement at the start of your pre-sleep ritual. And in that way, maybe it has some sort of positive knock-on effect on other health behaviors. And again, it's rare that supplements are studied in conjunction with behavioral changes. Then there are supplement times environment interactions. I think one of the interesting ones here would be using melatonin in brightly lit environments. So let's say that I break my leg tomorrow, touch wood, it doesn't happen, and end up in hospital for two weeks in a cast in a relatively brightly lit ward. If that was the case, then 
I could take melatonin at an appropriate time and it would be signaling to the cells throughout my body that it's the biological nighttime. And if I hadn't taken that melatonin, then even small amounts of light would quite dramatically reduce the amount of melatonin being synthesized in my brain. So I think there are those types of environment interactions to consider too. And then finally, I'd just add that it is possible to use supplements to help offset the negative effects of poor sleep in quite comprehensive ways too. And maybe this is a subject for a future time, but I think that it's just not something that's widely discussed and it's really interesting. And actually, just <laughs> being completely honest, I had a terrible night's sleep last night. Oh, no. But, but fortunately, I, I have a tool in my toolkit that can help me with that. And I took it this morning and hopefully my brain is now working okay. It feels like it is at the moment. Other people probably claim otherwise. <laughs> You're doing and pretty well. <laughs> the, the, the final thing that I mentioned was just that you can do those types of self-experiments. I mean, we, we won't go into detail here, but some things to consider would be including things like crossing over between treatments appropriately, letting enough time for any residual effects of taking a supplement to wash out. And it is possible to blind yourself to taking some interventions. This has been done recently in the context of microdosing psychedelics by some scientists at Imperial. Really, really interesting subject. And then finally, you want to measure some relevant endpoints. If you're taking supplement X because you're trying to fall asleep faster, then to assess the efficacy or the effectiveness of it, you're going to have some measure of how quickly you fall asleep, whether that's subjective or whether that's some sort of wearable. Another long answer. Long answer, but I think really important because I think a lot of the time people are just like, oh, like you said, the like you probably get frustrated from a lot of the discussions around supplementation because it's just like people just see a sleep aid and they don't even consider what, in, what it's impacting and what their actual problem is. They're just like, oh, this helps sleep. And it's like, well, sleep is very broad. What? do you specifically need what is the goal you're trying to achieve it's kind of like i don't know taking a multivitamin because you're like I, I think i just am low in something it's like well what well, look at your diet what might you be low in what might you need more of are you male or female does that influence what you might be low in so i think a really worthwhile discussion actually and there's actually some really different interesting kind of interactions and like you said trying to actually then test does it improve or does it make something worse and kind of pick one by one that sort of thing so yeah maybe we should go on to the kind of the first supplement to discuss was do you think melatonin is an effective sleep aid if so how would you use it sure short answer is sometimes and it's most helpful for so-called circadian rhythm sleep wake disorders and there there are some other instances when it's definitely helpful too and I think those would be things like certain types of insomnia. You could take time-release melatonin for sleep maintenance insomnia. Taking regular melatonin might help you fall asleep a little bit faster at the start of the night if you have insomnia. Melatonin could be helpful for REM sleep behavior disorder in which people act out their dreams. And there's also some really interesting research looking at the effects of high-dose melatonin intake on various different cardiometabolic health complaints and relevant health complaints too, including things like PCOS, because 
PCOS is driven in large part by poor blood sugar regulation and some things that follow from that. So the, the longer form of the answer to this <laughs> is, is just that I think we know how melatonin acts. It basically signals to our body that it's dark outside and therefore to engage in nighttime activities. And the way that it does that is by acting on its receptors, but it also has some receptor independent effects on things like oxidative stress and inflammation. Those mechanisms might help explain why it can be helpful in the context of metabolic health problems. One of the interesting things about melatonin is that in some animals, so-called phenological animals, it can be important in signaling seasonal changes in reproduction. And that's true of animals like sheep. Humans don't seem to have strong seasonal rhythms in reproduction, at least in our modern environments. Is that influenced by the fact that we now live in artificially lit environments? Possibly, but any seasonal change that do exist probably relate to things like holiday seasons and people having more time on their hands and more energy on their bodies. But with that said, I mentioned that it might have some influence on PCOS and, and some related fertility issues. And there has been some work looking at things like effects on pubertal development, but we can, we can come to that later. But anyway, melatonin also, as I mentioned, is influenced by genetics. And we don't need to, to go into any more details on that now, but that might ultimately affect some of the responses to supplementation. But I'm not aware of any evidence showing that it affects how sleep responds to melatonin supplementation. So with respect to your particular question, it's probably not quite so relevant. And just going into some of the details of circumstances in which it's helpful, I think I mentioned sleep-wake disorders. Those are basically circumstances in which people struggle with the timing of their sleep for various reasons. So for that reason, melatonin is very helpful in jet lag, shift work disorder, delayed sleep phase syndrome, which affects quite a lot of teens. They go to bed much later than would be ideal. And if they have to wake up at six o'clock for the alarm, they only have a five hour sleep opportunity and feel horrible. If they can use melatonin to help anchor their sleep earlier, thereby extending their sleep opportunity, then that can be quite transformative. But it's probably most helpful in the context of so-called non-24-hour sleep-wake rhythm disorder, which is a really unfortunate condition in which people are often blind, or it often affects people who are totally blind, the reason being that they have dysfunctional photoreceptors in their eyes that respond to patterns of light exposure and thereby signal what time of day it is to the master clock in the brain. And for these people, they can use melatonin supplementation to keep their body's clocks on time with the world around them. Because without that type of melatonin time cue, what happens is their clocks run free and they have short periods in which their body's clocks are synchronized with everyone else's. But then the rest of the time, they're just drifting along and more or less in a state of jet lag. And you can imagine how much fun that is for those poor people. So 
I also mentioned insomnia. I think in the context of insomnia, the, the most clear effect of melatonin is to speed the rate at which people fall asleep. It might have some other small effects on sleep. And one of the cool things about melatonin is that it doesn't affect sleep architecture much. Unlike other drugs, it's definitely a good thing. And if you are struggling to sleep through the night, then a slightly higher dose of time-release melatonin, maybe two milligrams, can be helpful. There's actually a particular pharmaceutical named Circadian made by Neurom Pharmaceuticals, which is indicated for sleep maintenance insomnia and has been studied a lot in elderly people and young people. But you can also get forms such as one that I think you've experimented with recently, Steve, named Microactive, and you can buy those over the counter in some countries. If you're in the UK, you can't get it over the counter. It is easy to get your hands on. But as we get to later, there can be some issues with sourcing good melatonin. And then there's REM sleep behavior disorder. And that that's actually a really, really big problem for some people. And it tends to occur in synchrony with certain neurodegenerative conditions, in particular so-called synucleopathies like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And when those people supplement with melatonin, they experience a sort of relaxing effect on their skeletal muscles. So the problematic behaviors that occur during the sleep period tend to be reduced. One of the nice things in, in this example is that the alternatives such as clonazepam quite nasty drugs and they often interact with other medications and given that REM sleep behavior disorder is something that affects many older people they're often already taking other drugs and that type of polypharmacy can of course be very problematic and if melatonin is less likely to interact with other drugs then that's bound to be a good thing and then also I mentioned the metabolic disorders and Probably the best studied is, is diabetes and pre-diabetes. There have been several studies in the last decade or so looking at this subject. And there's actually a meta-analysis published on it recently showing that when people regularly supplement melatonin, they have a reduction in their fasting insulin levels and quite possibly a small improvement in their insulin sensitivity too. But a lot of the individual studies have shown a range of positive effects on various outcomes too, including things like inflammatory markers and blood pressure. So I think there's some potential there. The problem is that the dose that's optimal probably depends on the metabolic complaint being targeted and optimal dosing hasn't been well studied either. And then finally, in terms of how to use it, melatonin seems really safe, unusually so. And there have been doses taken acutely as high as 240 milligrams of melatonin, which is an awful lot of melatonin. And there weren't really any, any adverse effects. But the issue, as I mentioned earlier, is that if you take melatonin supplements off the shelf and you measure them for their melatonin content, then going by a, a paper a few years ago, the content varied from roughly 80% below the label claim to 480% above it. And some of them also contain serotonin. So you've got, you've got to source good stuff and therefore getting some that's third-party tested is a bright idea. And there are websites like consumerlab.com that people can go to to check out which supplements do meet their label claims and which don't. I really like Consumer Lab. I think a subscription's worthwhile if you're a reg regular supplement user. 
And finally, with respect to dosing specifically, I think if you're taking it for small effects on sleep from time to time, so say that you were taking regular melatonin, Steve, just to fall asleep slightly faster, or if you're taking it for jet lag, then I think a dose between about 300 micrograms and one gram is probably best. A higher dose is probably worse for jet lag and circadian rhythm sleep weight disorders. The reason being that the half-life will be longer. And when the half-life is longer, the time at which you take melatonin is more likely to encroach to a part of the phase response curve of melatonin that you don't want to target. And we don't need to go into the details, but the idea is just that depending on the time of day at which you take melatonin, you can either shift your clock earlier or later. And if it's in your blood longer, then if you're trying to shift it earlier and you take it right around the end of the time at which it shifts it earlier, it could spill over into the time that it's shifting it later and thereby negate the early shifting effect, if that makes any sense. So small dose in those circumstances to sleep through the night, two milligrams of time release stuff, good option. Half-life is probably something like three hours of a lot of those, whereas for regular melatonin, it's typically less than one hour. And then for metabolic health, doses of around 10 milligrams have quite often been used, but again, I wouldn't really feel comfortable specifying a particular dose because it depends on so many factors. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. Super comprehensive and uh, particularly interesting about actually reflecting on like someone who is blind, so they haven't got the photoreceptors, which makes complete sense when you consider kind of how important light is to anchoring things and how we've spoken about that within the circadian rhythm and everything. And even like down to like blue light blockers and dimming things and make your room like a cave. And it's like, well, they're kind of always in a cave in that kind of strange sense. Uh, so yeah, super interesting and like really cool that we have these ways to improve kind of sleep quality for them, life quality for those sort of individuals. Uh, I haven't actually yet used the slow release microactive. I got mine from Germ like a German website. That's the only, like I was doing my searches to try and find some uh, that was appropriate because some places just really inappropriately dose them, uh, like oftentimes much higher than necessary. So yeah. I I've only ever used, I think like three milligrams of just normal melatonin pre-bed who knows? It could be yeah. way more or way lesser because you just, I didn't check it on kind of consumer labs or anything. Yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> well, if it's, if it's microactive, then it's probably good stuff. But it's interesting that melatonin supplements are so often overdosed when most supplements are often yeah. massively underdosed. I don't know why that discrepancy exists, but it's quite consistent. Yeah. At least it's, it seems to be safe for the most part for most people. Uh, but I have noticed sometimes that it will, I don't know if this is linked to your kind of when, if you take too much and then that might have the opposite, of, almost the opposite effect of what you're looking for, but kind of waking up a bit groggy when you have kind of a larger amount that maybe you don't need as much. Is that kind of what you're referring to? Yeah, people report different things subjectively, but there don't seem to be any dramatic issues in the short term or long term, if people take relatively high doses for quite long periods. But I know there was also a question about taking long-term melatonin yeah. and whether there are any problems with it. And 
the issue, of course, is that there haven't been studies looking at melatonin supplementation over the course of, say, decades, although there have been some looking beyond one year. Wow. And you might expect that long-term high-dose melatonin supplementation would be problematic in the same way that if, if you decided tomorrow, Steve, that you're going to compete in the Olympia in five years' time and you started taking Dianabol, after a while of taking it, your body's own endogenous production of testosterone would be lower. And you might also see some changes in things like androgen receptor densities. Why would that not occur for melatonin? But going by the work done so far, even though small doses of melatonin are super physiological, 300 micrograms will raise your plasma levels of melatonin well above what they would be had you not taken the melatonin. There's not really good evidence of, show, of melatonin synthesis reduction or receptor downregulation when people supplement with melatonin. And there have also been studies looking at kids, because I know one of the things I've heard a lot of people discuss recently is whether melatonin supplementation is bad for reproductive function. And, and I think the jury is out. I think there are circumstances in which it might be helpful for reproductive function. Maybe PCOS is one of those. But there has been some work looking at kids taking quite high doses of time-release melatonin for quite a long time, for example. So there was a study of that one that I mentioned earlier, Cicadin, in which they took it for two years. And, and these are kids who are quite young. Like so Some of them are, are two years old. And... The, the doses used also in this particular study were between two and 10 milligrams. So quite high doses. And they basically just found that it improved sleep in autism. They were studying autistic kids specifically, or kids with autism to be more PC. And on cessation of taking melatonin, they didn't see any evidence of withdrawal effects or anything like that. And they also looked at Tanner stages of pubertal development in, in the kids that were going through puberty. And there was no evidence of, of changes as a result of taking melatonin. So I, I think it's, it's probably safe. I'm, I'm not hanging my hat on that, though. And to err on the side of caution, I wouldn't recommend taking it for more than maybe 12 weeks or so. But just to be crystal clear, I've plucked that 12-week number out of thin air. I, I have no idea where it's come from. It just seems reasonable to me. And then there are, of course, questions about how to best come off the melatonin too and, and, and how that is relevant to other sleep aids. No, very interesting because I think, again, it's something that I don't know how many people we really consider, like, has this supplement been studied and used for long periods of time? I know like ashwagandha was one you kind of talked to me. I think it was 12 weeks as well for, for ashwagandha. It hasn't really been studied much longer than that maybe. So you're kind of like, probably worth coming off it for a period of time just because we don't know at the moment so like creatine is one that people talk about can i take that like long term or do i need to cycle it on and off and i don't know i don't know if there's like an influence of some like substances that you can get freely quite freely at decent doses in your diet anyway that the body yeah. then is okay with it like creatine if you ate a lot of like red meat and like fish you might yeah. end up getting high quality like quantities all the time creatine i have no qualms with yeah to be honest on the basis of what you just said you get gram amounts in the diet every day 
if you're eating a, well, a relatively well-rounded diet anyway. So supplementing three grams per day for the rest of your life outside of rare instances seems absolutely fine to me, provided that the creatine that you get is from a good source. That was that was actually the next follow-on question, wasn't it? It was, I've been supplementing with melatonin for a long time. How do I stop taking it without experiencing a few nights of insomnia? Yeah, and again, going by the literature, you wouldn't expect the insomnia. It could be psychogenic, though. It could be that somebody now uses melatonin as a kind of crutch. And it's important to avoid those types of sleep crutches. I find myself prone to that from time to time. I get used to sleeping with the fan on and then I go somewhere that doesn't have a fan and I find it harder to fall asleep. So I'm used to having my fan with me. But with that said, if you do experience withdrawal effects, maybe there is some legitimate biological basis of that, at least in your case, then the way that you would approach it is the way that you would approach coming off a sleep drug, say, and melatonin is a drug to be clear. And that means gradually tapering off your dose. So if you were taking two milligrams per day to start, then you might move to one milligram to 500 micrograms, 250 micrograms, and then off it entirely. And when people do that, they tend to be more successful at coming off sleep aids. There are other things that you can do to support sleep at this time, getting some psychological support, for example. I have mixed feelings about using alternative sleep aids at this time because you might just be replacing one crutch with another. But that there is also an option, particularly if you're moving from something which is habit forming to something which is not really habit forming. And we have one more question, but I don't know if how long your answer is on this one. So I don't know if we want to save it for another episode or if you would like to dig into it now. I just, let's just, just get out of the way, Steve. Right. Yeah. <laughs> get out of the way. So uh, this might have been even just one I, I asked. Uh, I know I was interested in it and I hear it talked about all the time, or at least it was. The hype has kind of died down. There was a time I saw every influencer sharing CBD and cannabis stuff and use their affiliate code. So it was, uh, are cannabis, cannabis products such as CBD and THC effective in promoting sleep or is it all bullshit marketing? Short answer. It, it's hard to tell because cannabis has not been well studied, but I think a lot of it is bullshit. With that said, I think CBD and THC, which are probably the two most commonly consumed, aren't particularly good sleep aids for the most part, and they're quite possibly bad for long-term sleep health. But there are some cannabinoids that are very interesting. Maybe the most interesting is a drug named ZTL-101. And as I think there are better, safer alternatives, I wouldn't personally recommend any cannabinoids outside of rare circumstances. But with that said, let's, let's just break that down, Steve. So it might be helpful just for, for a brief description of the endocannabinoids and, and what they do in our bodies. So we have endogenous cannabinoids. So cannabis-like compounds in our bodies that our bodies make. And they have many different effects on brain and behavior, and they, they bind to two particular types of receptors, the cannabinoid receptors one and two. 
and they influence lots of different brain functions, memory, mood, appetite, obviously, hence the munchies, and things like sexual function. And some of them have been quite well studied, but others haven't. And with respect to sleep specifically, some endocannabinoids have quite a clear circadian rhythm and therefore is intuitive they might be involved in sleep-wake regulation. And when people have studied these, it seems that they tend to promote different stages of sleep. And we don't need to go into the details of, of why that's the case, but one of the interesting things is that they not, not only have roles in specific stages of sleep, but they might also have roles in things like our dreams and the emotional salience of our dreams. So with that said, we have these circulating substances in our bodies that our bodies produce by themselves, but there are also phytocannabinoids, which are similar compounds that you find in plants. And the cannabis plant has lots of these, over a hundred of them. And this is part of the reason why it's hard to study different cannabinoids. And CBD is, is the most abundant of these. It makes up something like 40% of the phytocannabinoids in cannabis. And THC is responsible for the psychoactive effects of cannabis. CBD doesn't really seem to be psychoactive. And there are lots of other cannabinoids that might have some roles in sleep weight regulation and various phytocannabinoids are being studied for effects on things like pain. And we're starting to see more of these types of supplements coming out too. But there was a big hole in research on these substances, in part because cannabis got moved into a different drug classification. And when that happened, a lot of scientists lost interest. But there's now a resurgence of interest, in part because it's being legalized in many parts of the world. But with respect to its effects on sleep specifically, I think a lot of people who have sleep difficulties just reach for cannabis. And one of the issues, of course, is that this, this tends to happen among young people who don't get enough sleep. And that there is some work showing that getting less sleep is a risk factor for becoming dependent on cannabis as a young person. The research on cannabis and sleep is definitely in its infancy and to be honest, it's not very clear what to make of it because many of the studies are so low quality. It's been poor blinding, very few people involved in the studies, different ways of taking cannabis. You can eat it, you can inhale it, you can, and so on. And just to briefly summarize some of it, I think CBD might be slightly wake promoting at low doses. So say 15 milligrams of CBD, whereas going by one study done quite a long time ago that wasn't a particularly good study, higher doses of CBD might promote some aspects of sleep. When I say higher dose, I mean something like 160 milligrams. And it, it has been studied in, in certain clinical contexts too, but again, the quality of the research is quite low. THC has probably been slightly better studied for its effects on sleep as well as some related synthetic cannabinoids. And the, the two that have probably been best studied are nabalone and dronabinol, two mouthfuls. And when you look at this research, people do tend to fall asleep a bit faster after taking THC. 
And I think the synthetic forms I just mentioned are actually probably slightly more interesting as sleep aids. And it seems they might have some positive effects on certain types of sleep apnea. And they've often been studied when looking at sleep issues that are comorbid to other issues. So for example, if somebody has PTSD, then they might have really bad nightmares. And some of these synthetic cannabinoids can be helpful in those contexts. They've been looked at in chronic pain. And again, maybe they might support sleep health in people who are experiencing lots of pain. And they've also been looked at in HIV and multiple sclerosis and some other things too. But I wouldn't really feel comfortable recommending any of them based on any of that research. I mentioned earlier that the most interesting is ZTL 101, which is a sublingual cannabis product that's developed by Zalira, I think, Zalira Therapeutics. I'm sure it's not available over the counter, but there was a study published very recently showing that it's actually a really potent sleep aid in insomnia. Again, this is preliminary, but if you take the results of the study by face value, then when people who have chronic insomnia, so insomnia at least three days a week for at least three months, take this stuff, their insomnia severity improves quite a lot. They fall asleep a lot faster. They sleep a lot longer. And they, they are more likely to have side effects than when they take placebos. But the side effects are, are short-lived and don't seem too bad. An important caveat is that that study was very brief. It was only two weeks long. And we don't know much about what happens when somebody discontinues using it. And then I think one of the other more interesting cannabis-related products that's out there is one that I mentioned earlier, PEA, palmitoyl ethanolamide. There's a form of that named Levagen, which is made by GenCore, which is a micronized version of it that makes it far more bioavailable. And when people take probably between 600 milligrams and 1.2 grams of this stuff, they might well help counter pain that they're experiencing. It probably depends on the type of pain, whether it's coming from their nerves or coming from musculoskeletal system and so on. But going by the studies done so far, it does seem to help with pain. And if somebody's experiencing sleep disruption as a result of their pain, then maybe it could be helpful. But again, I'd say that the jury is out. And the most important thing with all of these is that I think they're bad options in the long term. When I say all of them, maybe that's an overstatement, but certainly CBD and THC. And the reason is what I touched on earlier, which is that they, they'll lead to tolerance and withdrawal effects and people end up in a vicious cycle in which they're struggling with their sleep. So they start smoking dope or taking some sort of cannabinoids and maybe that helps temporarily and they come off it and their sleep's worse than it was before and they're back to square one. And I think when you also consider that these different substances probably affect lots of different aspects of biology and behavior and sometimes in unfavorable ways, take the munchies as an example. Steve, if, if you're deep in your contest prep 
and you're taking some cannabis products to help you sleep better, which I know you wouldn't because you're a natural bodybuilder anyway. But if you were, then you might find that you're thinking that much more about that next pizza that's coming in two months' time. So, don't talk about pizza. So <laughs> I mentioned the P word. So I, I I wouldn't personally recommend them, but yeah. it's a it's a big industry nowadays. Yeah. And I think people need to be aware of the fact that that influences a lot of messaging. It can lead to a lot of bias in publications and that type of thing too. So I, I don't want to seem conspiratorial, but there's probably something to that. I think that's really well stated. And it's it's, it's kind of scary in the fact that I, I guess for a lot of people, they will get that initial short-term benefit. Like you said, it's, it helps them that one night. So then they're sold on it. And then they get that like, oh, I need it all the time. And that drives the, the market in a sense. And it's like, it's it's almost like a, putting a plaster on it, but not even, it's not healing. It's like a plaster that doesn't let the wound heal. It's like, you just constantly have to put this plaster back on every time. So uh, yeah, that's kind of scary in that sense. Uh, hopefully a lot of the, the listeners are kind of well aware of kind of, yeah, the what marketing can play a role in especially in like the physique realm it's a big big area so i appreciate all the detailed knowledge on that and i mean yeah i mean i wasn't even aware of all the different forms and who it could actually be helping and the fact that it's just not very well studied uh, like people will cherry pick studies or they just make it up they just say there's this study and they just they won't have read it they won't have been at greg and actually dived into the research so uh, i really appreciate you kind of explaining all of that Pleasure. Yeah, I, I must admit, of, of all the different sleep aids that I've looked at, I've been particularly impressed by the poor quality of the research on cannabis and its That's derivatives. A good way to put it. <laughs> impressed yeah. by the poor quality. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's striking. Uh, awesome, Greg. Thank you so much again for this episode. Uh, I think some really big takeaways and like if people just want to click through they can find the the short answer immediately uh good on you for taking on feedback uh so <laughs> I, it's good where maybe people will highly appreciate it so uh, i definitely was interested in the long answer though i'm sure lots of the listeners were as well i want to make sure uh, if people want to learn more about you if you've got anything going on i know uh, resilient nutrition are always kind of pumping out actually you did a, a recent article i shared uh, on lucy uh, not lucy on uh what's the product called uh, uh i've forgotten what it's called theanine l-theanine uh so you share I, I shared that one and uh that was like very interesting article very in-depth i love that it gives all the, like the references you can click through you kind of talk about it the study and then you can click through it straight through to it so if you're particularly geeky like me you can check all of those out and that can be uh great and yeah anyway anything going on on your end that you want to kind of talk about share with respect to rn Resilient nutrition, that is. Not right now, but soon, I hope, because <laughs> our next product is is due to come out shortly. And I'm very much looking forward to getting that out in the world. It's just that everything always takes slightly longer than anticipated. But you can check us out at resilientnutrition.com. Do have a look at that blog on L-theanine. Maybe we get to L-theanine in the next one, Steve, if we carry on the supplement deep yep. dive, because that's definitely among the better ones. And... You can also follow us on Instagram and elsewhere at Resilient Nuts. 
And then my personal Instagram handle is at Greg Potter PhD. So feel free to say hi there. Fantastic. Thank you so much again, Greg. And thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you soon. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can log your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.